Thanks so much for listening to the weekly teaching podcast from Prodigal Church. We're so glad you're connecting with us online. If you've been listening for a while or you consider Prodigal as your home church, would you consider giving monthly to support this ministry? We're so grateful for the increasing impact our church is having on our online listeners. Thanks for being a part of us. You can discover all things Prodigal on the Prodigal mobile app, available at your app store or on our website, prodigalchurchfresno.com. Now, let's dive right into this week's teaching. Welcome to week one of our brand new sermon series called Traitors, Lies in Plain Sight. And um, if you are listening to this on our podcast or with headphones without directly looking at a screen, this first illustration may not make a ton of sense, but you can always go back and watch out our app, YouTube, Facebook, or website uh, to kind of get clarity. But right now you are staring at uh, six circles. They're red and yellow and and magenta and green and blue, and there's a plus sign in the middle of those. I want you to stare at that plus sign, and I'm going to count down from 10 to 1, and I'm going to change the picture. You see all the colors now. The very next photo I'm going to show you is purely black and white, but I think you're still going to see some color. Okay, so are you ready? 10, 9, you're staring at the plus sign in the middle, 6, 5, four, three, two, one. Okay, I changed the, it's all black and white. Why are you still seeing color? Why are you seeing pastels everywhere you go? Now, shake your head and kind of look at it again and you'll see that it really is just black and white, that your mind was giving color, filling it in. You were deceived. You thought you saw one thing and you saw something else. That kind of deception is what we'll be looking at throughout this sermon series. Let me say it a different way. Florentino Tiny, was his nickname, Aspalaga, was a high-ranking officer in Cuba's General Directorate of Intelligence, okay, the, the Cuban equivalent to the CIA. He was a star. His final posting was in Czechoslovakia, and he ran Cuba's network of agents uh, throughout the region. But at some point, he became disenchanted by Fidel Castro and by Cuba, and he planned his defection. He had a government-issued Mazda, and he removed the spare tire from the trunk, carved a hole into the bottom of it, and told his girlfriend to get in there as they crossed the border into Austria. They both arrived at the U.S. Embassy and said immediately, I'm a case officer from Cuban intelligence. Tiny Espalaga was walked into the embassy, and he was one of the great walk-ins throughout the Cold War. What he knew of Cuba and its close ally, the Soviet Union, was so sensitive that twice after his defection, Cuba and the Soviets tried to assassinate him. Only once has he been seen since. Once Tiny arrived in Washington, D.C., the information he gave to the CIA was shocking, and he knew it. He started by saying that, you know, your CIA agent so-and-so who's working in Cuba? Yeah, he's a double agent. He's working for us. Uh, You know that government spy that you have in Havana in the consulate? Yeah, uh, he's a double agent. He's working for us. And on and on, double agent after double agent, Tiny kept revealing. Nearly every CIA agent and operative within Cuba was actually working for Cuba. All of the information that they had received about Cuba and its operations and its government and its plans was hand given to them by Cuba. 
The reaction in the CIA was absolute shock and horror. They couldn't believe that they got fooled so badly. And it got worse. When Castro heard about this, of Chinese defection, he paraded all of these CIA agents across Cuba to a, an amazing parade. And then on top of that, he released a 11-part documentary called uh, The CIA in Cuba. And it turned out that the CIA or Cuba intelligence had filmed and recorded almost every CIA operative and operation over the last decade. The, every purse that was actually a camera, every park bench that was actually a prop. Uh, when a, a CIA agent would wear one color, it meant one thing. When he'd wear a different color shirt, it meant something else. Uh, whenever they had their secret meetings in the park or at the cafe, it was wired for sound. It was as if a, a, a Cuban cameraman was standing behind the actual CIA agents for the last 10 years. When the Miami CIA office heard about this, they asked for a copy, which Castro obliged and gave it and redubbed it in English for them. The most sophisticated intelligence service in the world had been played for a fool. And this, was, this is what makes the story of Florentino Aspalaga so crazy. That it doesn't make sense. That it wasn't like Cuba fooled uh, novices. No. No, Cubans fooled the CIA, an organization that takes the problem of deception and espionage very seriously. They have a division called uh, counterintelligence that is supposed to spy on themselves to see if there's any kind of deception or impropriety within their own organization. Cuba got us. They deceived us. They played us. And they weren't the only ones. The United States had several people become double agents in the Soviet Union and throughout Eastern Europe. How? How? The CIA is, the, is, is no doubt the best in the world, and they were deceived. And if the CIA's best can be misled so completely and so many times, then what about the rest of us? We don't fare much better when it comes to deception. And we are in week one of this series um, called Traitors, and we're unmasking three deceptions, three double agents. We think they're on our side, but they are not. And the first deception is a foe that we are very familiar with. It is religion. Now, some of you are thinking, you're a pastor. This is a church. I'm on a church's website watching this or listening to this. What do you mean? We should be for religion. Religion is an ally, not an enemy. No, religion is a traitor. Religion is man's attempt at creating systems to make us right with God. And Jesus wanted to get rid of it. Religion is relating to God through systems of doctrines or codes of conduct, inherited traditions, or institutions of power. When we read the opening chapters of the Bible and see that God created all of the humans, all of humanity, and before we had a chance to kind of mess it up, we noticed something significant. That in the Garden of Eden, there is no religion. There are no special places where Adam and Eve can meet and commune with God. There are no special rituals they need to do in order to make God appear or to receive his favor. There are no special leaders needed to mediate between God and man. No, there is just God and humanity living together in naked intimacy. And the same is true for the closing chapters of the Bible in the book of Revelation. We find that God is bringing us back to the same kind of living, a reunion which we know God and there's no religion. And sandwiched in between it all is Jesus, helping humanity to spiritually course correct 
by reconnecting us to the heart of God. In the time of Jesus, religion was like a big fat finger pointing to God, but obstructing the view of God. Jesus had to shut it down. The word religion itself stems from the Latin word religare. And that word is a combination of two words, re, which means to return or to repeat, and legare, which means to tie or to bind. So to bind up again. Uh, it's the same word used for ligaments, right? Ligari Binds various parts of the human body together. But there is also a negative meaning to the word religion. Re, to return or to repeat. Ligari to tie, to bind. Quite literally, religion can mean a return to bondage. And throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, when the people of God get caught up in religious activities without getting caught up into the heart of God, God sends prophets, priests, pastors, preachers to rebuke the people of God. One of the most famous is in the book of Amos, chapter 5. God says to his people, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. He's like, I don't want your worship songs. I want you. I want your heart. I want you to make a difference in this world. Now, contrary to popular belief, religion is a traitor. It sets itself up as the way to God, but to, all too often obstructs the way to God in the view of God. And so today, I want to do something I've done before. I want to look at the, the three most prominent atheistic philosophers of the last two centuries, the 18th and 19th centuries. And I want to look at their critique of religion and see how that lines up with Jesus' own critique of religion, and see what we might have to learn from that. Um, the first uh, atheistic philosopher we want to look at is Sigmund Freud. And Freud's critique of religion is basically this. Religion is psychological justification, and it leads to self-righteousness. Okay, There was a case study of a young girl and the parents were having difficulties, so they met with a counselor. And whenever the little girl did something wrong, her parents would spank her. And this, this, this little girl, whenever she did something wrong, she almost intuitively tried to get caught. She was fairly deliberate. She would leave something out. She would hint at the wrong action, intuitively, and even hoping to get caught. Then the parents would say, what were you doing there? What are you hiding? What's going on? She would admit what she did, and she would get punished. Finally, the counselor and the parents are able to see what she's doing, wanting to get punished for her bad actions. Now, after each punishment, did her behavior change? No. In fact, it got worse. And this is Freud's critique on religion. He would say that this girl is using her parents. She, she was using the strict punishing parents so that she can still go on and do whatever she wants. I can pay for what I did as long as I'm punished I can continue on in my behavior. My conscience is clear. I've paid my debt. Freud says this is what people do with religion. They don't want to change their lives. They want to justify their lives. It's like the very last scene in the movie The Godfather. Uh, right? The, the family is at a baby's baptism. 
and uh, Al Pacino is wearing this tie and this suit, and he's in church with all these beautiful, elegant uh, symbols and windows, and there's the sense of awe, all the while, at, at the same time, simultaneously, all of his, his henchmen are gru gruesomely, viciously, and viol violently eliminating all their competition. Religion is psychological self-justification. All we've done is create a, a mean, punishing God who once I've done my time, once I've done my good deeds, I'm free to go on my merry way. I pay. I do my penance. I pay my tithes. And the fruit of this kind of living is either a smug righteousness or a lot of guilt and anxiety. Freud says God didn't create you. You created God, and it's a God you can buy. You can placate God with your religious activities. And the second critique is by Karl Marx. Marx was the one who said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Marx says, I don't see religion as the thing people use not to psychologically justify themselves, but rather to sociologically justify themselves. Religion is sociological justification, and it leads to exclusion. He says that religion, we use it to divide people because we're right, we're wrong. Our nation's better than your nation. Our religion is better than your religion. We're better than you. We're good in here. You're bad out there. It's just a way for us to justify liking the people who look like us, live like us, believe like us, and then exclude everybody else. That's what Marx would say. And then finally, Frederick Nietzsche. He's the one who coined the phrase, God is dead. And his critique of religion is basically this. Religion and all truth systems are a power grab that inevitably leads to the abuse of that power. This is the beginning of relativism, that there's no one singular claim on truth, and anybody who says there is is just trying to gain power. Religion is a power trip. It's an attempt to gain power and influence people at the expense of people. So those are the critiques. Freud, religion's about self-justification, and the result is self-righteousness. Marx, it's about sociological justification, justifying your race, your nation, your class, and the result is exclusion. And then finally, Nietzsche. It's a, it's a power grab, and the result is abuse. So religion is about self-righteousness, exclusion, and power. And hear this, none of which have anything to do with the teachings, life, and example of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, described in the Bible, never uses the word religion to refer to what he came to establish. And the Bible never uses the word religion in a positive manner, except in one instant. In James chapter 1, it says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And this is the kind of religion we're supposed to desire, to take care of others, the hurting, the needy. What does Jesus say about self-righteous religion? Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. He would have some words to say to the Godfather. What does Jesus say about exclusion? Well, his whole life was a walking, talking, inclusive movement. He cared for children. He talked to sinful people. He ate with tax collectors. He touched a bleeding woman. He spoke to demon-possessed men. He touched lepers. He conversed with promiscuous people. Jesus was about 
inclusion, not exclusion. Jesus was not nailed to a cross for who he excluded from the kingdom of God. He was nailed to the cross for who he included into the people and kingdom of God. What does Jesus think about power and abuse in religion? Matthew chapter 20, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He goes on to teach throughout his ministry that the greatest among you is not the king, is not the godfather, is not the queen, it's not the prince, it's not the commander, it's not the general. The greatest among you is the servant, is the slave. The first will be last and the last will be first. All of these critiques on religion by these prominent atheistic philosophers are actually in agreement with the teachings and ministry of Jesus. The religion that Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche rebuked, Jesus also rebukes. The greatest enemy of Christianity isn't atheism, isn't secularism, isn't liberalism or conservatism or Islam. The greatest enemy of Christianity is bad Christianity. Let me say it a different way. Bruxy Cavey uh, says it in a story of Bob and Sue Prunebottom. A fictional story, Bob and Sue Prunebottom were a few years into their marriage when Sue felt the need to challenge Bob on the lack of romance in their life and marriage. Gone were the days where he had initiated exciting and unexpected events that brought the two of them together romantically. Now their marriage consisted of a steady diet of predictable rituals, routines, maintained stability, but lacked passion. This was, understandably, not enough for Sue Prunebottom. Bob agreed, and he committed to take some of the initiative to help rekindle some of the former romance that they had shared together. So one Tuesday evening, around 6.30, the doorbell rang, ding, dong. Sue went to the door to find little Maureen Tupperman, their usual babysitter. And Sue was surprised since she hadn't booked Maureen, and she was even more surprised by Maureen's explanation. She said, Mr. Prunebottom booked me. Now this was a first. Bob had called the babysitter on his own. And so he, Bob laid out a beautiful red dress for Sue to put on, took her to this wonderful Italian restaurant. There was a candlelit table in the back, a card laying on the table with her name on it. And as she opened it, a, a beautiful handwritten note with some sweet words about his wonderful wife. As dessert showed up, Bob reached under the table to pull out a single stunning blue rose, her favorite flower. His thoughtfulness moved her to tears. She began crying in the back of that restaurant. Bob thought to himself, how can I make this last? The next Tuesday night at exactly 6.30, the doorbell rang again, ding dong. Sure enough, it was young Maureen Tupperman. Two weeks in a row, Sue thought. Okay, I could get used to this. Now there's a bit of lack of creativity, but a night out is a night out. And so the red dress, the Italian restaurant, the candlelit table in the back, there was a, a card handwritten with her name on it. And her delight turned to disappointment when she read the card. Bob had wrote almost the exact same words in the exact same way as he had done the week before. Whenever Sue tried to take their conversation into a different direction, Bob seemed to find a way to bring it back to the same issues, the same questions, the same discussion points as they had had at 6.30 the week before. For Sue, the evening went from feeling weird to feeling suffocating. 
A part of her wanted out. Uh, another part of her wanted to give Bob the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps the joke would soon end, and it came as no surprise that as dessert arrived, Bob reached underneath the table to pull out a beautiful blue rose. Bob and Sue enjoyed a cordial but mildly distant relationship the next week, till the following Tuesday evening at 6.30, when Sue opened the door and heard the ding-dong. Once again, Bob manipulated Sue through a scripted evening of supposed romance. Very little different from the previous two Tuesdays. Sue is just plain discouraged now. She's thinking she's in a movie. Is this like Groundhog Day? And sure enough, the following Tuesday at 6.30, ding dong. And a week later, ding dong. And so on and so forth. Tuesday after Tuesday. Blue rose after blue rose. And today, if you were to ask Bob how his marriage was doing, he would probably smile with a sense of accomplishment and say, I romance my wife religiously. He might even boast about finding the secret to a successful relationship and encourage you to follow his system to healthy marriage. If you were to ask Sue how things are going, you know you would get a different take. Most likely she would burst into tears and tell you that she feels trapped, imprisoned in a loveless relationship by someone who means well, but who doesn't have a sweet clue about what romance is. In me, I'm left wondering if this is how God feels sometimes. See, Bob mistook the form for the substance. He turned their relationship into a kind of religion. He lost the heart of his connection with his wife. Love became unnecessary. In the middle of rituals and routines, love became unnecessary. And this is what we find in religion today, a system that makes love unnecessary. Because I prayed a prayer, because I believe the right things, because I'm a part of the right party, we're allowed to function on autopilot. But marriage doesn't go on autopilot. It doesn't run, it crashes. And so does religion. This illustrates why Jesus always, always puts the emphasis on his teaching on heart issues, not behavioral routines. If the heart is right, loving actions will follow. Religious people obey God to get things. Gospel people obey God to get God. Do you too choose form over substance? Many of us have been given this beautiful gift of Jesus. And it was given to us in a container. And we love that container because that container gives us all kinds of benefits. It gives us personal benefits, gives us social benefits. We're in the right crowd. We believe the right things. We're a part of the right things. But we fell in love with the container and for what it gives us rather than the substance, the thing that, that, that is unlocked with inside of it. No, Jesus is much bigger and cannot be contained in any container. Now, religion is trying to sell water by the river. And Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yeah. Jesus wants love. He wants you. So my encouragement for us, would we evaluate our own religious activity? Are, do we use it 
to benefit us? Uh, do we use it for self-justification or social justification or do we use it as, as a power or influence over others? Or do we use it to help bring God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven? Not to just abandon earth to get to heaven, but rather to bring heaven to earth. This is the call for us as Christ followers. So we want to name that deception. We want to name that double agent. And we want to find the real truth that we find in Jesus of Nazareth. Would you be transformed by his great love as well? God, we thank you for the example we have in you, that you replaced religion with yourself. And so God, help us to do the same. Help us to replace religion and all the things that come with it, with you. With you being Lord of our life in our heart. And may that compel us to go and love sacrificially in every way to transform the world and for our own transformation. We need you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. We're really excited for our four-year birthday celebration coming up on September 19th. That's only three weeks away. And so we want to encourage you that if, if you have not been back in person with us, would you consider joining us? We'd love to see you um, and celebrate with you uh, throughout the fall. And if you have just currently found us online and never visited in per person, we would love to meet you, to say hi, and to figure out a better way and the best way for us to continue to minister to you and your family in a greater way. We'd love to say hi. Uh, we meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Bullard High School Theater and with kids ministry opportunities um, throughout the morning as well. We hope to see you soon. We, ha we hope you have an amazing week. Grace and peace and peace in Afghanistan. You're still a traitor.